Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning, and it's glad to be back. We were in Missouri last week seeing our grandbaby, Henry, which is all the reason in the world to go somewhere, but we were glad to be back, and I want to thank Randy. Where, Andy, where are you at? Where's Randy Schwartz at? Right there. Let's thank Randy for stepping in and doing a great job last week. Really appreciate that. It's awesome that we have guys that can step in and bring God's Word in a powerful way. Today, we are going to continue in the book of Genesis, looking at beginnings. And if you remember, as we began this series, we said kind of the premise for why we're doing what we're doing is, by going back to the beginning, by going back to the book of Genesis, we're able to go back to some foundational truths. Truths that not only grow our faith, but truths that help shape our life. So we've talked about who God is. We've looked at what God does. We've even looked at the first thing that God did with humanity was give, them, give him responsibility, specifically as it pertains to marriage. And then in chapter 3, we saw sin come into the world, right? And then in chapter 4, we saw the fall out of that sin with the story of Cain and Abel. And then last week, Randy did an incredible job talking about the lineage of Cain, how it went into a spiral of wickedness. But then there was this lineage of Seth that began to bring hope back to a world that there's someone was going to follow and to live and to love God. And today, we're going to be in chapter 6, and we're today, after we've looked at all this stuff, today our goal is to look at God's plan to rescue his people. What was God's plan to rescue? So you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 6 is where I'm going to be this morning. Now, I'm going to read the first four verses, and they're not going to be on the screen. Now, let me tell you why, because originally I planned not to go to the first four verses, but start in verse 5, but the first four verses are four verses that I usually get a lot of questions about when you study the book of Genesis. There's some things that are said there. Maybe you've never had a question about these things, but today I want to bring a little bit of clarity because I think it sets the stage for us before we get into verse 5. So chapter 6, verse 1 says this, when the man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took their wives and their wives, and they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. These days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward where the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. Now, real quickly, just so you know, because some of you thought about this before, some people would say that the, the sons of God, they were fallen angels, and the daughters of men were just the women that were on the earth, and that somehow fallen angels came and married, you know, fleshly women, and they had kids, and that were the mighty men, or even some would say the Nephilim. And I would say, I don't believe Scripture leans that way at all. Now, ultimately, nobody really knows. But I'm going to tell you what I believe as I've studied this in context. Remember, I say this often, context is king. You've got to study scripture in context. And so in context, here's what I believe, that the sons of God are the line of Seth, that that's what he's talking about, the line of Seth, because we know that Abel's dead, and we know there's Cain, and then we know there was Seth. Before there's other brothers and sisters, there was Seth. And so the sons of God, I believe to be the lineage of Seth, and the daughters of man would be any woman that was in any lineage other than Seth's could have been in Cain's lineage. It could have been in other brothers and sisters' lineage. But any woman that was not in the lineage of Seth. So you've got Seth's lineage, the sons of God, sons of God and the daughters of man, or any other daughter that was in any other lineage other than Cain. Now they got together and married. And they had kids. And those kids were called mighty men, men of valor, men, men of renown. Now, you typically think of those words and go, they must have been incredibly moral people. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean that at all. It actually means that they were violent men is what it means. 
And all, also on the earth, you see this phrase, Nephilim. Well, that can be translated giant. So, Doug, what's your explanation? I don't know. Is it okay that I don't have one for that? Is that okay? Is it okay that one day when you get to heaven, you can ask God that instead of me? Because I don't know. Because it can be translated as giants. But what we know is they were not the products of the sons of God and the daughters of man. They were already on the earth during that time. We're not sure all the intricacies of that, but they were here. Now, here's why this is important for us. The reason that this first four verses sets the context for us is because what we see in these four, 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 four verses is this basic truth, that we see man continues to rebel against a holy God. Here's what I mean. If you study the Old Testament, one thing you know that upsets God is when Israel would intermarry with another nationality, right? When they would intermarry with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, any ites you can come up with. When they were intermarry with another, another race of people, another, another belief system of people, God was never okay with that. Why? Because if you intermarry, eventually you're going to worship their gods. And so we see right out of the gate here, this lineage of Seth, as Randy talked about last week, was now bringing hope of people that were going to follow God, love God, and live for God. Now they're marrying outside of that belief system, and they're marrying a group of people that if, that, that if those Cain's descendants have been cursed and have walked away from God, and they have, no th- they have no regard for the things of God. So you've got this wickedness that's continuing on in the face of the earth. And that leads us to verse 5. Look at me in verse 5, what it says. It says this. The Lord saw the wickedness of the man was great on the earth, in the earth, and that every, underline this, and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually. Now this phrase, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, in the Hebrew it means more than just he saw the wickedness. It means God saw the totality of the wickedness of man. So when God looked at the world, the sovereign God, here's what he saw. He saw the self-indulgence of humanity like he saw Adam and Eve in the garden. He saw the jealousy of humanity like he saw the jealousy of Cain. God saw the total depravity of humanity. He saw the total wickedness of the heart of humanity. He saw all of it. In fact, let's go back to the verse if we can. I want you to notice what he says here. Let's go back to it. And it said, on every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. So the word that I want you to focus on is the word continually. Think about that for a moment. Here's what Moses is telling us, that when God saw the wickedness of all of humanity, here was what God's conclusion was, that wickedness had consumed them, right? That every thought, now think about that, 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 that on earth, that every intention of every thought was evil. Think about that. Every motive behind every thought was wicked. That's what he's saying. Every intention was wicked. Every motive was wicked. Everything was wicked. And this evil is continual. This evil is continuous. This evil is consuming. So here's the beautiful picture that we were getting in chapter 6, that the world that Seth's generation has grown up in, the world that Seth's lineage has married out of and started doing things in rebellion against God, now they live in a world that's completely and utterly prevailing in wickedness. I know what you're thinking. You just described America and the world in 2022. Maybe I did. But doesn't that mean that we should perk our ears up a little bit more to what's going to happen next? Right? Because what we see in this passage is that wickedness is prevailing. But I want you to hear my heart this morning. Even though wickedness is prevailing, 
there's two things I want you to see as we keep reading. And here's the first thing. I want you to see that even though wickedness is prevailing, even though when God sees, he sees the total depravity and wickedness and evilness of man's heart, even in the face of all of that, we're going to see something. We're going to see the thread of God's love. Even in the face of all of this, the first thing, the first point I want you to write down is we're going to see the thread of God's love. In fact, let me show you how we see that thread. Let's go to that slide if we can there, Colby. Uh, the thread of God's love. Look at me in verse 6 again. It says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, I want to do a little bit of word study here, and you have to know this. If you don't care about Hebrew, that's fine, but you've got to know this. That word here, it says, that when we look at verse 6, here's what we find out about God. God's heart hurt for humanity. It really did. God's heart was hurting for humanity. Why? Because look what God had done for them. Look what God had given them. Look what God created for them. And over and over and over again, we got Adam and Eve, then we got Cain, and now we got the Seth and his descendants, not to mention everybody else. And they're just continuing to rebel against God. At what point would your patience be up if you were God? Think about your parent life. At what point was your breaking point, your threshold, when your patience with your kids? But even in the face of all that, here's what we see. We see a thread of God's love. And this fact, that we see God's heart is hurting for humanity. Now, we see it in two words. The first word is the word regret. It says that God regretted that he made man on the earth. That word regret doesn't mean what it means for us today in the English language. Regret means I wish I had never done that. This word regret in the Hebrew is the word naham, and it means a deep level of sorrow. That's what it means. So if you read this passage, it's not God saying, you know what? I kind of blew that. I should have just not made mankind. They're so disruptive. They're so rebellious. I am sorry that I made it. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that God had wished he never made mankind. Because ultimately, is God sovereign? Does he know all things? Come on, does God know all things? Yes. So if he knows all things, he knew how this was going to play out, didn't he? He knew before the foundation of the world this was going to happen. So to say he regretted means that God is, is not immutable. That means he can change and that he's like, well, I, I, made, I made a mistake. God makes no mistakes. So the word regret here doesn't mean he wished he never made man. It means the deep level of sorrow that he felt for the humanity that rebelled against him. And then he used the word grieved here as another way to express his heart. The word grieved just means to be deeply moved with anguish. Now just a quick question. Why would an eternal God, a sovereign God, be so filled with sorrow and so moved with anguish for humanity. Why? Because he loves us. Did you hear me that? Do you hear me say that? Because he loves us. The reason that God was so filled with sorrow, the reason he was filled with so much anguish is because God has a deep love for humanity. And so we see a threat in the face of all this wickedness, we see a thread of God's love and the fact that he hurt, his heart hurt for humanity. We also see something in verse 7 that displays his love for humanity. Look at me, verse 7. It says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry. That word sorry is that same word, naham. It is used different in English here. I am sorry that I have made man. So what is God's love going to do? It, it shows his heart is hurting for humanity, but God is going to judge wickedness. Did you, did you see that in the passage? Now, some of you wonder, how is God's love reflected 
in judgment. Well, let me just ask you this. When, as a parent, if you're a parent today and you have kids, when you disciplined your kids, did you do it because you loved them or did you do it because you were like over the edge? Yeah, that's, a, that's the right answer. Okay, over the edge is the problem, right? We love them, right? You did it because you love them. Now, did the kids feel that way? No, that's why when I was a kid, I told you a couple weeks ago, I'd run around the room and tell my mom, I love you, but do you love me? Because there was something about discipline that makes me feel like you don't love me anymore. And that actually the opposite is true, that a reflection of God's love for humanity was the fact that he is just God. He had to hold humanity accountable for what they had done. Now, what did humanity deserve? Total annihilation, right? I mean, God had created this perfect world, this perfect garden, and all humanity had ever done is thumb their nose at God. All humanity had ever done is rebel against God. All humanity had done was bring kind of lame ideas of worship to God. All humanity done has rebelled against him. They deserved total annihilation. And listen, would God have been just and loving to annihilate everything and everybody? Come on, would he have been? Yes. But then we have verse 8. Look what it says here. Verse 8 says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, this thread of love was demonstrated in God's hurt for humanity. This thread of love is demonstrated in God's need to judge the wicked. But this thread of love is also demonstrated in that God showed Noah grace. How many of you need grace this morning? Anybody? Aren't you glad for God's grace? I am. Because listen, I am wicked at heart. I am evil. I am wretched. I am pitiful. It's left to my own opinions, my own desires. I'm always going to rebel against God, but he always shows me grace, and he showed Noah grace. And you say, well, why Noah? Out of all the people in the world, why Noah? Well, that's why verse 9 and 10 tell us why Noah. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a what? A righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why, why Noah? Because the Bible says Noah was a righteous man, meaning that Noah was a man who was faithful to God. Noah was a man that was pure in heart. Noah was a man that was going to do all he could to walk with God. Now, was Noah flawed? Come on, was Noah flawed? Sure he was. In fact, if you don't believe me, just read after the ark story, right? I mean, Noah had some issues. But at the end of the day, when God looked through all the earth and is ready to rightly destroy everything, he shows and gives his undeserved favor and puts it on Noah, a guy who tried to live a life of faithfulness, a guy who was trying to be pure in heart, a guy who sought to walk with God, and he showed him favor. So as we get into this story and we talk about the wickedness of the world that's going on, please don't miss this. Please don't miss the thread of God's love. In fact, the world that we live in, we get so wrapped up in how things are bad and evil and wicked, and yes, they are. But should we as believers be looking for God's small demonstrations of his love for humanity even amongst the wickedness? Sure we should. And so even though the world was wicked during the times of Noah, even though prevailing of the evil that prevailed on the earth was terrible, we still see God's love. He hurt because of the rebellion. He had to discipline and judge the rebellion. But he showed grace to Noah and his family. Now back to the story. Look what happens in verse 11. It says this in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the way on the earth. Now, real quickly, just, just a bit of information. How many times does it say corrupt there? Let's see. Once, twice, three, maybe four times, right? Three or four times? When you read scripture, and when something is repeated more than twice, it's to add emphasis. Like, for example, when we talk about when Scripture says, and the angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is Lord God. That's, just, that's to declare you can't even get a picture of how holy God really is. So I'm going to say it three times to add emphasis because you can't grasp the holiness of God. Three times it says, and the earth was what? Corrupt. We cannot grasp how corrupt the world really was during this time. Look at verse, it goes on. It says this, and God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God's like, okay, Noah, I'm bringing you into my story. You ready? Noah, listen, here's the deal. I've showed favor on you. I've shown you grace, but I want you to know I'm still going to judge the rest of the world. So we see the thread of God's love. But the second thing I want you to notice that's coming up next is we see the plan to rescue. God's plan to rescue. A plan that he's now going to let Noah in on. And we first see this plan in verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it in inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. And its height is 30 cubits. Verse 16. Make a roof for the ark and finish it with a cubit above, and set the door on the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, here's God's plan of rescue. You ready? God has two plans. His plan of rescue includes two things. First of all, his plan of rescue is in the ark. Now, you think about the ark here, and you look at what, what, what Moses tells us, what God has told Noah. When you look at what God's told Noah, here's basically what the ark is. Just think about it for a moment. The ark is nothing more than an oversized coffin. It's really what it is. Now, why would I say that? Because coffins were made out of gopher wood back in that time. Now, why was it made out of gopher wood? Anybody know? It floats, and what else? It's indestructible. So here's what he's told Noah. Noah, God tells Noah basically this. Here, Noah, here's what I want you to do. I'm about to bring destruction to the world. Now, I'm sure Noah probably didn't have the totality of understanding of what's going on. But he says, Noah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a boat. Now, this is a whole other thing. I mean, to this point, we're not even sure it's rained on earth yet, so we don't even know what a John boat looks like. In, I mean, right now, we're not, even, we're not even on that page. So I want you to build an ark. I want you to build this monstrous boat. I want you to build, Noah, an indestructible boat that floats. And oh, by the way, as he'll find out later, those that get on this boat will what? They'll be rescued, right? They'll be rescued. Now, hear me on this, church. That God's plan for rescue, first and foremost, was found in the ark. The ark was the means of how God was going to save a few. It was the means how he was going to save a few people. Build this indestructible boat, and those that get on it will be saved. Listen to me, and I want you to write this down as we think about this. We must make this correlation. The ark was the only way of escape of God's coming wrath. There was no other way of escape. Listen, I know some of you, how many of you are good swimmers in the room? Okay, you're not treading water that long, right? It's not going to happen. You're not going to tread water, and you're not going to be able to, they're going to throw you a buoy down and bring you up on the, no, no, no. None of that was going to happen. The ark was the only way to escape the coming wrath. Now, I want you to hear me. We've got to make this correlation. Jesus is our ark, right? Jesus 
is our ark. Those of us that take, I mean, listen, Jesus is the only way that you and I can have salvation. There is no other way to be saved than by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We have to believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. See, we, we've got to realize that Jesus is our, he is the only path to salvation. And for those of us that take refuge in Jesus, those that take refuge in him, we will miss the coming wrath of God. I don't know if you know this or you thought about this, but one day Jesus is coming again, isn't he? But when he comes again, he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a righteous judge. And when he comes, he will bring wrath. There will be wrath and destruction and total separation at his second coming. There will be a white throne judgment that those who do not know Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. Listen, there's going to come a time when God's going to bring out his wrath, when Jesus is going to come again and the wrath of God's going to come. And only if we have taken refuge in a relationship with Jesus will we miss that wrath. The only way, just like the ark. And also, if we take refuge in Christ, just like the ark, we are safe and we are secure in him. Those who got on the ark, you know the story. Those who got on the ark, were they safe? Were they secure? Were they protected? Jesus does the same thing for you and I. See, as the ark was the way, only way of escape for them, Jesus is our only way to escape the coming wrath of God. So when we think about God's plan of rescue, first of all, we see it in the ark. The second place we see it is in the covenant. Look with me, verse 17 through 21. It says this, For behold, I will bring a great flood upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, and you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And every living thing of flesh you shall bring to you, two of every sort in the ark, Keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creepy thing, which could have been left out for me, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into the, to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for, and for them. Verse 22, Noah did this and he did all that God had commanded him. See, the second place we see God's plan of rescue is in the covenant. See, the covenant that God makes with Noah is a covenant of salvation and sustenance. Here's what I mean. Hey, Noah, you get on the ark and your family, you're going to be saved. You're going to be rescued. You're going to be spared from the judgment that's coming to this world. But now am I going to spare you, Noah? I'm going to sustain you. Why, why do you think God had Noah bring all these animals? Why do you think he told him to bring all the food? So he could provide everything that Noah was going to need while he was on that boat, right? So the thing is, the means of salvation was the ark, but the way of salvation was Noah entering into the covenant. See, Noah had a choice to make. Get on the boat, get off the boat. Enter it or stay on the ground and wait God's coming wrath. See, God offered Noah an invitation and the invitation was simple. Here's what it means to be rescued. Here's what it means to be saved and avoid the wrath that's coming. Just get on the boat. See, the means is 
the boat. But the way is take my covenant. Now, I want you to hear me say something this morning. If Jesus is our ark, isn't Jesus also our covenant? Isn't he? See, those of us that put our faith in Jesus Christ, those of us who put our faith in him, he saves us, right? He saves us. We become a child of the Most High God. When we put our faith in Jesus, listen, for those of you who are thinking about what does it mean for me if I don't know Christ to really be rescued, here's what I mean. Jesus is the means and the way of salvation through Jesus. The means was the ark. The way was enter the covenant. But Jesus both for us. He is our ark, but he is, he is our covenant. And those of us that put our faith in him, we will be saved. And we will miss the wrath that's coming. But not only will we be saved, but he now, as a child of God, will provide everything that we need. Everything that we need, everything that we have to have spiritually, God will provide for us. Why? Because we belong to him. We've been adopted into the family of God. Jesus is our covenant. So as we come to the chapter 6, I just want you to think this with me this morning. I want you to realize that when we read chapter 6, here's what we see. We see a lot of wickedness. We see more wickedness than we could ever imagine, but here's what we also see. We see a thread of God's love for humanity. A love that hurt because humanity rebelled. A love that was willing to, to discipline and judge the wickedness, but a love that was willing to show grace this thread of love also led to a plan of rescue. And that plan was the ark. But that was just the means. The way was for Noah to embrace and receive and enter into the covenant with God. And the same thing's true about you and I in our relationship with the Lord. Now, as we look at the ark, there are four truths I want you to write down this morning. Four truths I think we gain from this passage. And here's the first one. There was one ark and one way of escape. That's it. One ark, one way of escape. Dave and I have gotten into the last year or so watching a lot of Viking shows. And when they show up on shore, there's like hundreds and hundreds of boats, right? And so if, you, if one boat gets hammered, you got more coming. No, there's, there's one ark and one way of escape. Hear me on this. Everybody hear me. There's only one way that you and I can be saved. It's through accepting and receiving the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. One ark, one way of salvation. Here's the second truth. The ark was always part of God's plan. There wasn't a moment that God woke up going, what are these people thinking? I guess I've got to come up with a plan of rescue. No, no, no. The ark was always, God always knew where this was going. The ark was always part of the plan. Listen, Jesus was always part of the plan. Before the foundation of the world, it was predetermined or predestined that Jesus would be the one that was sent, that would die on the cross, that would bring the ultimate forgiveness of sin. Jesus was always God's plan. If you believe that this morning, say amen. amen. Always plan. Third point. Third truth, God invited Noah into the ark. You and I are invited to be in relationship with Jesus. See, the difference in our story and Noah's story, God had limited invitations that went out then, right? It was Noah and his immediate family, and everybody else was going to be judged. But can I tell you the good news of the New Testament is? That for God so loved the world, that whosoever, that this invitation goes out to everyone. 
despite your past, despite your background, despite what you've done, despite where you've been, despite anything, this invitation is for everyone. But let me give you one more truth. It's a truth that we don't see in this passage. It's a truth we're going to get to next week, but we've got to talk about this morning. And it's this. One day, that ark door was going to shut, and there were no second chances. Now, if you're knowing his family when that door shut, do you think there was excitement in your heart that God was going to rescue you? Sure. Do you think there was sorrow in their heart that everybody else was going to die in judgment? Sure. Hear me on this. One day, Jesus is going to come again. And one day, our chance to say yes to Christ is going to be too late. Now, for those of us, if he, before he comes, when we slip from this life into the next, when we die and move on, that's it. Because it's appointed once for a man to die, and then what? The judgment. But if Jesus comes again, and this white throne judgment, there are no more second chances. There are no more, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I meant to accept you when I was 12. I know I'm 42, but, but can I do it? No, 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 there's no more second chances. There is a season when the invitation is open, and we have to accept it. Because when the invitation closes, there are no more second chances. Now, here's what I hope you get this morning. I hope you get this. I hope my prayer is that we would get that we too live in a world that's filled with wickedness, don't we? It's filled with wickedness. Evil is everywhere. But I hope we also get this this morning, that every single one of us need to be rescued. Every single one of us need to be rescued. And the question is, have you responded and received the invitation that God has offered you in Jesus? And most of us have. Most of us, I was nine years old when I said yes to Christ. I was nine years old, and I knew what I was doing. I understood what I was doing. And on that day, I said, yes, I want Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Did I understand at nine when I understand at 48? Absolutely not. But it was so real for me, I can remember like it was yesterday. Have you said yes to that invitation? And if you haven't, that invitation still goes out today. And if you haven't, would you receive it this morning? Well, Doug, how do I do that? It's simple. Just by acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner. I reflect the heart of a lot of these people we're reading about in Scripture. I know that I'm wicked. And I believe that your son Jesus died on the cross, and three days later he rose again, and I invite you to be the boss, the master, and the Lord of my life. I surrender myself to you. Would you come into my life and save me and change me and forgive me? And if you will do that this morning, you will be in a covenant relationship with God. And one day when the wrath comes, you will miss it, and you will get to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven worshiping at his feet. And if you have made this decision, shouldn't we have an urgency about us? I mean, if God had told Noah, Noah, hey, listen, I'm inviting your family, but whoever else you can reach out to, please do so. We'll have room for them on the ark. Do you think Noah would have got after it? Do you think Noah would have, would have beat the, the trees and he would have gone to the villages and done whatever he could to get as many people as he could to get on the boat? If he had that opportunity, do you think Noah would have done that? I think he would have. What about you and I? See, here's one thing we talk about right here, and I love this. We talk about loving God and loving people, and we really do. This is one of the few churches I've ever been a part of that truly demonstrate their love for God and demonstrate their love for people. But if we really love people, we got to go after some people. 
We got to go after our neighbors. We got to go after our siblings. We got to go after our relatives. We got to go after our spouses. We got to go after our relatives. We've got to go after people. Listen, it's awesome if you know that you're going to heaven when you die. That's wonderful. But let's take as many people with us as we can. Let's go out and share the good news that can change someone's eternity. If you're a believer, what this story should do is produce in you an urge to go in. I'm not going to lay my head down to rest tonight until I have a plan to go share the good news of Jesus. So will you do that as a believer? Will you make that kind of commitment? Oh, Doug, you just don't know. You know, I I just don't ever have the right opportunity. Come on. Can we just say in light of everything I've said, that's pretty lame, right? Listen, when I, when I was younger, I was convinced that my grandma, my dad's mom, didn't know Christ. Now, how do I get convinced of that? Because of the way she acted, the vocabulary she used, I was pretty confident she didn't know Christ. And I prayed about it and prayed about it because she's my grandma. I had just been called to ministry. And so I prayed about it, prayed about it, thought, you know, I, I need to share the gospel with my grandma. I, I need to really sit beside her bed and know for sure that she's going to go to heaven when she dies because I may never have her chance. And I'm telling you, every time I'd go see my grandma, there's always people in the room, always people in the room. And I would leave the room going, you know what, <clears throat> just wasn't the right time. Wasn't the right time. Wasn't the right time. And there was one day she passed away. I never had that conversation with her. So I was pretty distraught and talking to my mom. Mom said, well, your dad actually had that conversation with her. And my dad at this point wasn't even like showing that he was a believer, but he wanted to know where she was going to go. And she said, yes, I accepted Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. So that when my mom's mom was going to die, she too was someone I wasn't sure of if she knew Christ. Why? Because the way she acted and the language she used. I mean, she was that person that wore the shirt. I think I might be a Christian, but I cussed a little bit. I mean, that was my other grandma. And so, so I, remember, <clears throat> I remember I wasn't going to let this pass by. And there was one day I went in there. She was in my aunt's house. She was about to pass away. And all those people in the room, I said, can I just have the room? like I was the president or something. Can I just have the room? And I remember sitting there holding my grandma's hand and said, Grandma Porter, do you know for sure that when you close your eyes, you're going to see Jesus? Are you, do you, not because of you being good, because nobody's good. But have you ever really made that decision? And with big old tears coming down her cheeks, she said, yes, Douglas. That's what she calls me. Mom called me Douglas when I was in trouble. My grandma called it to me when she loved she words of endearment. So she said, yes, Douglas, I know for sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And that moment reminded me I don't care what opportunities are provided or not provided for me. I need to see some of those moments. I can't write off, well, it wasn't the right moment. You don't know that their right moment might be walking out the door and never coming back again. They may be hit by a car. They may have something happen to them. You never know what someone's life holds for them. And so if somebody's in front of you, we need to do what Robin Williams said in Dead Poet Society. We need to carpe diem. We need to seize the moment. We need to take the opportunity we have right now and to share with as many people as we can. So if you're a believer this morning, can you make a commitment that as you go from this place, that you're going to be faithful to share your faith with somebody this week? And if you don't know Christ, would you say yes to him today? Would you maybe grab one of those green handout pieces? At the bottom, there's a response card, or there's response cards back by the bin. And would you fill that and say, today, I gave my life to Jesus. And today, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Say, I would love to know your story. I would love to pray with you and talk with you. And so if you need to make that decision, please do. But if you're a believer, listen, I'm calling you out this morning. I'm calling me out this morning. Will we make a real commitment to go share our faith? Because one day, Jesus is coming again. And do you know when he's coming? No. But when he comes, it's too late. So who do you need to be talking to today? Who do you need to send a text message to? Who do you need to make a phone call to? Who do you need to get in your car and drive straight to their house and talk to them today? Who do you need to go see today? And will you... 
do it. Let's all stand together as we pray. God, I love you. I thank you for this story today. I thank you for the passage. And God, I pray that we would feel some weight with this. That as we look at our world that we live in, we could too say the same thing. That it's corrupt, corrupt, and corrupt. All around the globe, corrupt. We see it, we know it, we sense it, we experience it. But God, even in the corruption, we still see your threads of love. We still know that you have a plan of rescue, and that plan is Jesus. And Lord, for believers here today, I pray with everything in me that this story would create an urgency in us to go share our faith. We don't have to have all the right words. We don't have to have thousands of verses memorized. We just have, a heart, have to have a heart willing to be used by you because we know if we will open our mouths to share your good news, you will fill us with the words to say. And while we think somehow our words come out jumbled up, messed up, and, and, and not coherent at all, you can take those words and make them perfectly clear in the mind of the person that's receiving them. So God, there is no excuse this morning. We know people that are lost and are going to split hell wide open. And if we say that we love you, then it should be reflected in how we love people. And to love people means to share the good news with them. So God, as believers, will we make that commitment? God, I pray for maybe somebody here today that doesn't know you, today that they would say yes. Today they would realize they don't know when their last breath is going to be. They don't know when you're coming again. There's going to be a day where there are no more second chances. And today they're going to say yes to you. Today they say, I want Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. God, would you give them the courage to do that? God, just be with us. Move in our spirits today. For it's in your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Now today, as we get ready to sing, Believers, there's a challenge out there. Will you receive it or not? If you don't know Christ, would you accept him this morning? Or maybe there's some of you in your, in your heart this morning, you just got some weighty issues going on. It has nothing to do with what I talked about, but you've got some weightiness going on. And you just need to come to this altar and just cry out before God. You just need to lay it all before the Lord. This altar is open for you. Or maybe you're struggling, need somebody to pray with you. We'll have people on both sides who would love to pray with you. But however God is stirring you this morning, would you just respond to that? Don't just sit back and go, you know what? Maybe this feeling will pass. No, God is working. God is moving. Don't say no. Say, yes, Lord. Whatever you'd have me to do, I'll do. Maybe that's pray. Maybe that's commit. Maybe that's accept him. Whatever it is, will we be faithful to respond to that? If you need to come, the altar's open.